Praise the Lord, everybody. It's time for the word of God on today. And I'm so grateful that the Lord has you hearing this message and this series of messages that we're about to do. So we're starting a new series of messages today. And these messages are about the sovereign savior and sacred scripture. We know that, that Jesus is sovereign. He's the only begotten son of God. He's, he can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he gets ready, with whomever he pleases, do it any way he wants. He has the power for all that. He's a sovereign savior. And of course, the Bible, these are sacred scriptures. This is the written and recorded word of God. It's holy, it's sanctified, it is set apart. And so we're gonna spend time looking at the sacred scriptures and Jesus, the sovereign savior, what he thinks about those scriptures. Because I know I have all these years, I've heard uh, the difference between what Catholics think about the scriptures and uh, what Protestants think about the scriptures. And of course, I had to study what Baptists think about scripture and Methodists think about scripture. And then Church of God in Christ and the Apostolics, what they think about scripture and Presbyterian and Lutheran and all these different denominations. And now I hear people saying, well, here's what I think about the Bible. Here's what I think about scripture. And all of that is fine. That's great. But I want us to understand what the sovereign savior, Jesus Christ himself, his view, his take, what is Jesus mentality when it comes to scripture? Because here's the thing. Those of us who claim to be Christian, that we have received Jesus as our personal savior. We are Christians. We are Christ-like. We are Christians. Should we not be like Christ in our view of scripture? And so we certainly got enough to work with and deal with in this series of messages because 14 different times it's recorded that Jesus cited the Old Testament, whether it's about marriage with Adam and Eve or whether it's about Moses and the serpent in the wilderness or Elijah and all of those miracles. And Jesus, uh, he cited the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and Mrs. Lot and Jonah and the fish. So Jesus, he would refer to the Old Testament often. So we have a lot to learn about what his view of scripture is about. 11 times Jesus said, have you not heard? And when Jesus said, have you not heard? Then he would make a reference to the written scriptures, to the sacred word of God. And Jesus 30 times said, uh, he, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written, said it 30 times because he wants us to know his take, his view what he believes about scripture. So we're gonna spend uh, the next few weeks addressing this so that the same view Jesus has about scripture will be the same view you and I have about scripture. And so today we want to talk about unbreakable, unbreakable. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to worship you and praise you. Thank you that you've already heard our prayers. And Lord, you know our needs and you know what's happening in this world. And so we turn to you, your Holy Spirit and your word. Speak to us today, dear God. Give us the clarity, the power, the understanding so that we can apply this word to our lives and live in a way that brings honor and glory to you. I pray through your preach word today that somebody's gonna be saved, a life is gonna be changed, a difference is gonna be made, emancipation is going to happen. And I believe it done in Jesus name. Amen. Unbreakable is what we're talking about on today. And we're going to come from the gospel of John, John chapter 
10, verse 35. John chapter 10, verse 35. This is the New King James Version. Listen to what God's word says. This is Jesus speaking. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Praise the Lord. And the scripture cannot be broken. Un breakable. That's what Jesus is speaking to us. You talking about his view of scripture, his take on scripture. He said in John 17 and 17, your word is true. Jesus just believed that God's word was true and trustworthy. He called it unbreakable in John 10 and 35. I used to preach for promise keepers all throughout the United States and, and they would have us in stadiums filled with men trying to get men to keep promises to their wives and promises to their children, trying to get men to keep promises to their community and to their church and, and whenever they make a promise, make sure you follow through. And Promise Keepers was trying to bring in all different kind of denominations and colors and cultures and everything else. And I was on the preach. I don't remember the city, but I do remember Native Americans showed up with tens of thousands of men. And there were a few Native Americans who showed up for the Promise Keepers Conference. And some of them got on program. And they were there with their headpiece and their attire and their Native American garments on. And one of them spoke for the rest of them and said, there's a reason we wanted to connect with Promise Keepers. And he said, because Native Americans have entered into more than 1,000 treaties with the United States of America, more than 1,000 pact, 1,000 contracts, 1,000 promises, 1,000 treaties. And that Native American said, and the United States broke every single last one of them. He said, we wanted to get with Promise Keepers because we wanted somebody who would keep promises. 1,000 plus treaties, all broken. And in the face of that brokenness, Jesus says in John 10 and 35, that the scriptures are unbroken. In the face of broken homes and broken families, in the face of broken systems and economic systems and education systems and criminal justice systems, in the face of, of, of broken systems, Jesus said, in, in the face of broken businesses and corporations, Jesus says, there is something that we can find that's unbreakable. It is the word of God. And even as Jesus is dealing with this, he was not actually arguing with these Jews uh, about whether or not God's word is true because the Jews he was talking to, some of them were Pharisees, a religious sect, and others were scribes who were like the professors of theology in that day. And they accepted the scripture as true. Jesus accepted the scripture as true. They just embraced it as trustworthy. He wasn't arguing with them about whether scripture is true. Jesus was arguing with them on his mention of himself claiming to be the son of God. He said that these Pharisees and these uh, scribes, these professors of theology, he said they're blind. That's why in the previous chapter in John 9, he heals a man that was born blind and Jesus made some, some mud and put it on his face. Go wash it in the pool of Siloam. Man came back seeing. He said, I was blind, but now I see. And the Pharisees and the scribes kept attacking him about Jesus. And Jesus said, 
they can't see. So in John 10, he's trying to get these unbelievers to see he's the son of God. So he talks about, I am the door and I am the good shepherd and I and the father are one. And every time Jesus mentions I am, it may not mean anything to us in the 21st century, but in the first century among Hebrew people, when Jesus said, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life, I am the living. They, they knew that was a reference to the great I am. When God told Moses, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses said, well, we, I, got, I need the name of this guy. Who are you? They're gonna ask me your name. Tell them I am, that I am. So when Jesus says, I am the shepherd, I am the door, they knew he was making a reference to being God and the son of God. And they begin to pick up stones in John chapter 10 and they're getting ready to stone Jesus. And Jesus said, how are you gonna stone me? Because I claim to be the son of God. Haven't you seen my works? They said, no, we're not stoning you because of your works. We're stoning you because you claim to be the son of God. And Jesus then quoted Psalm 82 and six. And when he quoted Psalm 82 and 6, he says that the psalmist says about these unjust judges in Psalm 82, the psalmist says about them, he calls them Elohim. He calls them small g gods. Genesis 1 and 1 in the beginning was Elohim. And now in Psalm 82 and 6, it's not talking about Jehovah. It's talking about these unjust rulers, these unjust government officials, these unjust lawmakers. And he said, he called them, the psalmist called them Elohim. He called them small g gods and Elion, the son of the most high. Psalm 82 or six, that's the verse Jesus is quoting. And he says, now, if this psalmist will call unjust judges gods and sons of God, sons of the most high, then why you got an issue with me claiming to be the son of God? Because it's in scripture and the scripture is unbroken. The scripture is unbreakable. The scripture cannot be broken. That's what Jesus was dealing with there. And Jesus says, if you're going to accept other people being called the son of God, cause the scripture said, why are you tripping? Cause I'm claiming to be the son of God because the scripture is unbroken. Let me slow this down a little bit because I don't think it's by coincidence that Jesus is quoting and making a reference from Psalm 82 because in Psalm 82, the psalmist is talking about justice. So when we get Jesus view of scripture, then we understand Jesus and justice because Jesus used scripture to justify having justice. So in Psalm 82, if the psalmist is talking about that the judge of all the earth is gonna judge the unjust judges on the earth, uh, that the psalmist is saying that the ruler of the universe is going to, to rule and judge these unjust rulers. That the king of kings is going to judge uh, the kings of the earth, the heads of state, those who are lawmakers, that God is going to judge them because when he calls them Elohim and the sons of the most high, the sons of God, he says that here you are, you're a ruler, you're a judge, you're a government official, and God says, I've given you authority, I've given you power, I've given you resources, I have given you the law, you have everything you need to bring justice. But instead of bringing justice, that you have brought injustice to children, to women, 
to the poor, to the marginalized. All of this is in Psalm 82, which Jesus is making a reference to. And then the psalmist says, and you're going to tell those judges, and you're going to die, and you're going to be judged. I'm not going to let you do all, bring all this injustice and then not have a consequence to it. Because the psalmist said that they did have justice, but they had one kind of justice for the wealthy in Psalm 82. Then they had another kind of justice, which was injustice for children and women and the poor and the marginalized. Even though God gave them the authority and the power, God gave them the resources, God gave them the law, God gave them everything. He even called them the sons of God and they were still unjust. And it's not just in Bible times that we see this, but we see it in our times, in the 21st century, in the United States of America. There is justice if you are white male or if you are wealthy, there is justice. But when you start dealing with black people and brown people and poor people, we see injustice, it's not the, and, and you, got, you have these government officials, you have these lawmakers with all of this power, all this authority, all of these resources, but still won't bring justice to black, brown people, to poor people. Uh, it was Brian Stevenson of the Justice Initiative. Brian Stevenson says that in the United States of America, you have a better chance of getting judgment if you are rich and wealthy than if you are, if you are black, poor, and innocent. And that's why he, he, he's about this justice initiative. Because you can be poor or black and brown and innocent and still can't find justice the way somebody white and rich can find it. And I could give you thousands of, of illustrations to prove this, but I'll just mention one in Wisconsin where uh, this black man gets shot in the back seven times by a white police officer in front of his children. And then he gets locked up and he gets chained even though he's paralyzed. And that's because the officer said he felt threatened from an unarmed black man getting in his car with his children. And so he got shot seven times in the back by a police officer. In the same city, a white man with a rifle, an automatic rifle, walking down the street after killing two people, shot and killed them, walking down the street. Police officers see him, let him go. Don't do anything to him. He turns himself in later on because there's a different kind of justice if you are white living in America. And Jesus quotes Psalm 82 and says, oh no, the judge of all the earth is going to do something with these unjust judges. Here you are with God's power, his authority, all of these resources that you have, and you have not brought peace, and you have not brought equality, and you have not brought justice. That's what Jesus is talking about in scripture. And Jesus said to these Jews, now, if you can see the psalmist calling them sons of God, why are you tripping because he's calling I'm calling myself the son of God. And Jesus goes on in John chapter 10, and he says, then judge me by my works. He says, when you look at my works in society, they match up with God's word and scripture. You wanna know what Jesus thinks about scripture? He thinks so much about the truth and the trustworthiness of scripture until his works in society line up with God's word in scripture. And we need 
since we are Christians and we are Christians, we are like Christ, then be like Christ. Have our work in society ought to be matched up with God's word uh, in scripture. But you can't get that if you're trying. So many people try to accept Jesus and then reject scripture. I hear people saying, well, you know, I've accepted Jesus as my personal savior and I'm spiritual, but you know, I'm just not religious. I don't go to church and you know, I don't read the Bible, nothing like that, but I'm, I'm, I've accepted Jesus. How are you gonna accept Jesus and then reject scripture? Because matter of fact, the only way we even know that Jesus is the son of God is because of the revelation of scripture. It is the scripture that reveals to us Jesus is the Messiah. So how are you gonna receive him as Messiah, but then reject the scripture that taught you he's the Messiah? That's where we got it from, the word of God. In the Old Testament, in the scriptures, it, it tells us that a, a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and, and, sh and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The scriptures show us that Jesus is the Savior. He is the Messiah. And of course, in the scripture, in the Old Testament, it says that he's going to be born of a virgin, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. The only reason we even know that Jesus is the son of God, that he's the savior, the Messiah, is because of the revelation of the scripture. How in the world are you gonna say you received Jesus? It's, it's the scriptures that told us that he would die among criminals. The scriptures told us this. It's the scripture that revealed him. And then you're gonna say you receive the savior but reject the script. And that's the only way you know somebody testified, somebody witnessed, somebody preached it, somebody taught it out of scripture so that you will be able to know that this is Jesus the Christ. Uh, E.B. Hill, one of my favorite people, he's gone on uh, to glory now, but E.B. Hill was a great preacher out of Los Angeles. I met him when I was a student at Bishop College and uh, a, a great leader and we saw him all on uh, Christian television, Christian radio, all throughout our nation, different parts of the world. Great man of God. And as a matter of fact, he and I preached together on Promise Keepers, a great honor to preach with the great E.B. Hill. He talks about when he was a little boy that he grew up in Louisiana in a two-bedroom uh, log cabin. He said his grandmother raised him in a two-bedroom log cabin in poverty in Louisiana. And he said his grandmother never went to school. She didn't know how to read and write, but she made him go to school and learn how to read and write. And Evie Hill said when he would come home from school as a little boy, his grandmother would be sitting on the porch, rocking in a rocking chair, and tell him, boy, go in that house and, and bring me the Bible. And so he'd go get the Bible and come back out, and she'd say, all right now, and he'd, she'd tell him where to open the Bible to read. And she said, now, now you read this. Remember, his mom, can't, grandmother can't read or write. She'd tell him where to read, and he'd start reading, and then his grandmother say, all right, stop right there. Now let me tell you what that means. Dr. Hill said, that he was the one that had the education. His grandmother had the revelation. Y'all, the only way we even know Jesus as Savior, not because of how much education we have, but because of the revelation that we have received from the scriptures. And the scriptures reveal to us how to receive the Savior. You don't claim Jesus as your savior, but then denied the scriptures. No, the scriptures are sacred and holy. That's the only reason you even know how to receive Jesus Christ. How do you know? You say, well, I'm, I'm saved, I received Jesus. How did you know how to do it? The scriptures told us. The scripture said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
The scriptures said that if you can confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Jesus from the dead, you'll be saved. The scriptures said Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not. But to those that received him, to them gave he the power to be the children of God, even those that believed on his name. The only way we even know how to be saved, how to receive Jesus, is the revelation that comes from the scripture. So don't, don't sit up here trying to embrace the Savior and then deny the scripture. And it's the scriptures that remind us Jesus is coming again. It's the scriptures that remind us that Jesus is going to return. We sit with all of this hope. I'm a Christian. I've accepted Jesus. And, but, but then denying the scripture, they talk about, and I know he's coming back again. How do you know he's coming back again? Because the scriptures told us he's coming back again. In the book of Thessalonians, it talks about that Jesus is going to descend from heaven with the shout of the archangel and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And those of us who believe and remain are going to be caught up together to meet him in the sky. And we get all of that from the scripture. And so Jesus' take on the scripture is to accept it, receive it, to make sure that you have. And, and I want you to understand something about scripture. Our take on the scripture ought to be the same as Jesus. And that is this, that the scriptures have stood the test of time. Oh, hallelujah to his name. The scriptures have stood the test of time. Now, y'all, the scriptures, Jesus said they're unbreakable. You, you can forsake them, but you can't break them. There are those who are caught up in apostasy and are falling away from Christ and his church. And people ended up in all this depression and hopeless and all of that. That's because of your forsaking scripture. You didn't break them, but you did forsake them. But I want you to understand, even if you don't believe in them, the scriptures are still true. They have stood the test of time. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. Because the, the Word has stood the test of time. And God gave us His Word. He gave us His spoken Word through the prophets. He gave us His living Word through Jesus. But He also gave us His written Word through the Scriptures, through the Bible. And in the beginning was the Word. The Word was here before you got here. And we also learn that heaven and earth is gonna pass away before one jot or tittle of God's word does. Wait, so the test of time? In the beginning was the word? Yeah, it was here before you got here. It's gonna be here when the world is on fire? Yeah, it's gonna be here when you gone. So even though you've rejected it, it doesn't make it any less true. Vol uh, Voltaire was a historian, author, writer. Uh, Voltaire lived in the, in, in the 17th century. And what they, what do call, I don't know why they call that uh, enlightenment. That's when slavery was at its worst in the United States of America. How can your enlightenment be my nightmare? Something wrong. Anyway, Voltaire was an author and a writer and he wrote plays and books and they still study him uh, in schools now. But Voltaire claimed in his writings that he believed in God, but he just he had a disdain for Christianity and the Bible. He said he believed in God, but he was like uh, deism, like deist that they believe God created everything, but that God doesn't intervene and get involved, that God doesn't intercede. So he believed God existed, he just didn't believe that God did anything to help us here. And Voltaire had a disdain for Christianity and the Bible, and he would talk about it and write against it all the time. And one of the things he wrote in 1776, Voltaire said that in, the, in 100 years, in his, after his lifetime, in 100 years, that Christianity and the Bible would be extinct. He said both Christianity 
and the Bible would be gone, that nobody would think anything about that. A hundred years, he said, from his lifetime. Then, of course, now it's been more than 300 years since he wrote that, and Christianity not only is not extinct, but Christianity has expanded all over the world. And the Bible? No, it's not extinct. The Bible hasn't gone anywhere. The Bible is still the number one bestseller every year. Every year throughout the world, the number one bestseller every year is the Bible. Yo, the Bible was here before Voltaire got here, and the Bible's still here after Voltaire's gone. And 50 years after the death, after Voltaire wrote in his house that the Bible's going to be extinct, 50 years after his death, that's when the Evangelical Society of Geneva acquired Voltaire's house and used his house as a printing press. And in that printing press, what they printed was Bibles and Bible tracts. And they would store the Bibles in that house until they could distribute it throughout the city and the state, the nation, and the world. The same house where somebody said the Bible wouldn't be around after 100 years, more than 300 years later, that's the house that was used to print Bibles and store Bibles and distribute Bibles because the Word was here before you got here. It will be here when you go on because the Word of God, the Scriptures have stood the test of time and Scriptures have sustained maltreatment. The Scriptures have sustained mistreatment and misinterpretation. This is not the first generation of people that tried to, to uh, disclaim the Bible and the script. This is not the first generation of people that tried to say the Bible is not real, it's not God's word, it's not holy, it, it's not sanctified. This is not the first time there's been a mistreatment and a maltreatment and a misinterpretation and a misunderstanding of God's word. But the scriptures have sustained through all of that because Jesus says in John 10 and 35, the scriptures are unbreakable. Y'all, misinformation and maltreatment of the, of the Bible is not going to break the Bible. Um, I, I hear black people, some, not all, saying, well, the reason I don't believe in the Bible is because during the time of slavery, uh, black, uh, the, the, the white slave owners would use the Bible and they would twist that truth in order to get the slaves to be more docile. I said, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You don't believe in the Bible because you said white slave masters twisted what the Bible said to make the slaves, black slaves, more cooperative. Yeah, that's why I don't believe in the Bible. That makes no sense to me. Why would you reject the Bible with the truth rather than reject the, the twisting of the truth? You don't have to reject the Bible that is true. Reject the one that's mistreating and maltreating and misinterpreting it. Y'all, you're going to need God's word to deal with what is happening in this world. And don't let mistreatment, and this is, and this is not just in the 17th and 18th century either. There are maltreatment and mistreatment of the scriptures today. Some people unknowingly and ignorantly doing it. And some people with intentionality that does it. But I'm not going to turn my back on the truth because somebody is mistreating the truth. I mean, there are those even in the 21st century that will use the Bible as a prop, use the church as a prop to try to push their own political agenda and will stand in front of a church that they don't attend, don't give to, and don't support and hold up a Bible. It's a book that they won't even read for their own advantage. I'm not going to turn my back on the Bible in the church because somebody is mistreating it. 
I still love the child. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And I still love God's word. His word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my pathway. And I love it. And I'm not going to let other people's mistreatment of it keep me from studying it and learning it and reading it and benefiting from the sacred scripture. Uh, George Foreman. George Foreman, of course, uh, former heavyweight champion of the world, Hall of Famer in boxing. George Foreman, we all know him. And if you like me, you love George Foreman. I love his personality and what he's been able to accomplish. In 1973, George Foreman fought Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier was undefeated champion at that time, but he got beat by big George Foreman. And Foreman became the heavyweight champ. Then the very next year, George Foreman in 1974 fought Muhammad Ali in the, uh, the rumble in the jungle in Africa. We all know about that. Uh, Muhammad Ali, George Foreman going at it in Africa. George Foreman in his book, God in My Corner. George Foreman, he, he testifies that right before he left to go to Africa to fight Muhammad Ali, one of his friends gave him a Bible. And when he gave him the Bible, he said, George, you need to take this with you to Africa, to the boxing, because the Bible is going to be good luck to you. So George Foreman said he took the Bible because he was going to use it for a good luck charm. He said, George Foreman said he believed in, in good luck. He believed in luck. He said he had lucky pennies and lucky charms and rabbit's feet. And he, had, he said he had all kind of stuff for luck. So he just added the man told him the Bible would be good luck to you. He just added that to the rest of his lucky stuff and went down there and, and boxed against Muhammad Ali. And that's when Muhammad Ali uh, roped the dope, right? That's when he, he got defeated. And um, George Foreman lost to Muhammad Ali, I believe it was round eight when Ali knocked him out. George Foreman says that after that fight, he took the Bible and threw it in the trash because he said the Bible doesn't work. He said, because if the Bible worked, then I wouldn't have been defeated. If the Bible worked, I would not have lost. And then, I guess it was about three years after that, George Foreman, at the peak of his profession, retired from boxing. He just gave it up. He accepted Jesus Christ as his personal savior and got called to preach and started reading God's Bible and started embracing God's Bible and meditating on the Bible. And he, he just loved the Bible. He would preach and teach the Bible, pastor in the church. And then after 10 years, after retirement, George Foreman came out of retirement because the church has this, uh, this youth facility and they needed some, they needed money for it. They, they, they were running out of money. So George Foreman said, I'll just go back and box. Everybody said, George Foreman is crazy. How are you going to come back and box? You, you're too old. You're too slow. Uh, your reflexes ain't the same. These young boxers are going to kill you. But he came back, and that's when he fought Michael Moore. When he fought Michael Moore, George Foreman was 45 years old, had been retired for 10 years. And, and when I tell you Michael Moore was killing him for the first 10 rounds, he was killing George Foreman. I felt so bad for George Foreman. But in round 10, George Foreman got off one right hand, bam, and knocked Michael Moore out. And George Foreman became the oldest person to ever hold the heavyweight championship. And then uh, one of the things I noticed, when he had the Bible, when he fought Ali, he used the Bible as a good luck charm, and he was defeated. But when he had the Bible and he fought against Michael Moore, that's when he read the Bible. He embraced the Bible. He meditated on the Bible. And when he did that, that's when he got the victory. Y'all, 
you and I can't use the Bible as a good luck charm in our hand. We need to do like George Foreman and get that word in our head and get it in our heart. And that's when victories begin to come in our lives. You have to embrace the word of God. You have to trust in God's word and read that word and study that word. It's going to make a difference in your life. And I'll say this too. Um, i tell you this about George Foreman. He don't have to worry about raising money for that youth center anymore. Because George Foreman, he may not have made a lot of money in boxing, but the George Foreman grill, this man made almost $300 million with the George. And I'm not saying that if you start reading the Bible, you're going to make $300 million. I'm not saying that. But I am saying when George Foreman did embrace God's word and he received it, he began to prosper. That's what the word says. That if you meditate on God's word day and night, you'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit of its season, its leaves shall not wither, and whatsoever you do shall prosper. Y'all get in God's word. Don't talk about accepting the Savior, Jesus, and then rejecting scripture. Let me give you one more and I'm done. Because the scriptures have stood the test of time. The scriptures have survived and sustained even through maltreatment and mistreatment of it. And the scriptures have been able to be sustained through tribulation. You know, all this stuff we're going through, all this pain, all these difficulties and the social injustice and the political unrest and the racism and all, this is not the first time this world has experienced tribulation and trouble and trials. And through all of that, God's word still stands. That's why you need the word. This is not the time to turn your back on scripture. This is your time to embrace scripture like Jesus embraced scripture. Y'all, they were getting ready to stone Jesus. They were getting ready to arrest Jesus. They were abusing Jesus. They did all of that. Jesus didn't turn his back on scripture because his take, his view is that the word is true. Somebody said truth cuts truth crushed to the ground is going to rise again. And even in tribulation, even in trials, even in troubles, we have to make sure that we embrace scripture. Read that Bible, meditate on that word, live off of that word. And I'll close it like this. I just, I just want to encourage us that the same thoughts Jesus has for scripture should be the same thoughts we have for scripture. I'll close it like this. Uh, Jimmy, but Jimmy Butler is uh, an NBA basketball player. He's an all-star. He made the all-star team multiple times. Uh, Jimmy Butler, uh, one of the leaders in, in, in points in the league and, of course, one of the best defenders in the league. Uh, but Jimmy Butler, I don't know if you heard his story, how he grew up. He had a very difficult childhood. When he was an infant, when he was born, his dad abandoned him as an infant. His dad just took off and didn't look back. And his young mother was raising him by herself. And then when he was 13, his mother put him out of the house. Now Jimmy Butler says that he was not homeless. But the reason why people keep calling him homeless because he would live with a friend one day and a family member the next day and a relative the next day. And so he didn't have anywhere to stay because his mom put him out when he was 13 years old. He was a freshman in high school and another freshman in high school knew that Jimmy Butler was trying to play basketball and this, this young person, uh, he played football and basketball. He challenged Jimmy Butler to a three-point shooting contest. And after they had a three-point shooting contest, Jimmy Butler and this little young cat, they became friends. So the young man took his new friend, Jimmy Butler, home with him. And when they found out, when his parents found out Jimmy Butler was homeless, they offered to allow Jimmy Butler to move into their house and stay with them. That was amazing to me because this, this couple already had 
six or seven children. They had six or seven children and then bringing in a teenage boy whose parents had abandoned him, put him out. And Jimmy Butler said, and they did all of that before I could play basketball. They didn't do it because I could play basketball. They just took me in. Jimmy Butler went on and got a scholarship to Marquette at, and at Marquette he became All-American and then uh, he, he met Buzz Williams, the coach at Marquette, and, uh, and, and, and the coach realized that Jimmy Butler had some issues. Who wouldn't? Your parents, your father left you, your mom put you out, you're living from house to house. You Who wouldn't have issues with that? And, and Coach Williams told Jimmy Butler, as a youngster in college, he said, man, I think if you read the Bible, you can find some direction. And Jimmy Butler said at first he didn't listen to the coach because he was an atheist. He didn't even believe there was a God. How can there be a God? And my father walked out, my mother put me out. I'm living in poverty. I don't have anywhere. How can, how can there be a God? He was an atheist. But then one day before a game at Marquette, somebody walked up and handed Jimmy Butler a Bible. And Jimmy Butler went to his coach and said, Coach Williams, what do you think I ought to read? Just before a basketball game. And then Jimmy Butler said that he went into the manager's uh, equipment closet and sat in there in the manager's equipment closet and read from the scriptures. And he read, the, and that became a routine for Jimmy Butler, that every game before game in college and the pros, he reads the Bible, he studies the scriptures. And that, when he started reading that scripture every day, every, before every game, he went on and became a first round draft choice coming out of Marquette, read the scriptures till he was an All-American at Marquette, read that scripture until he had multiple chances to be an All-Star in the NBA. He read the scriptures until 2015, he became the most improved player in the NBA. He read those scriptures until he got a hundred plus million dollar contract and he kept reading, it's still a part of his routine because he discovered his coach was right. If you read the Bible, you can find some direction. And he went on to be the most improved player. If you, like me, are trying to improve your life and trying to do better by Jesus and trying to be everything God wants you to be, we gotta do like Jimmy Butler and read that Bible, make it a part of our routine. And when you read the scripture, I'm not saying you're going to the NBA, but you might not become the most improved player, but you'll become the most improved person in the word of God. This whole message today, trying to get us to think about scripture the way Jesus think about scripture, is to get us to spend some time in the word. There's power in the word. There's joy in the word. There's deliverance in the word. We gotta get in the scriptures, y'all. The, the, the word of God is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my pathway. David said, King David said, hide your word in my heart, God, that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119 says, how can a young person cleanse their ways by taking heed to the word of God? I already told you, heaven and earth will pass away before one jot or tittle of God's word. I don't know about you, but I'm sticking with the word of God. There's salvation, deliverance, emancipation, power, all of that in God's word. Speak to my heart, Holy Spirit. Give me the words that'll bring new life. Words of the wings of the morning. The dark nights will fade away if you just speak to my heart. And then I'm gonna pray, just like the songwriter said, keep on talking to me, keep on talking to me, keep on talking to me. And that's what God does in the scriptures, in the word, in the Bible. He keeps on talking to you 
to give you the direction and the power that you need to face whatever you're dealing with in your life. 